Hello! Happy New Year from the east to the west coast. Welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. I'm actually su quite surprised as well that I've been able to at least get this quick of a turnaround, but considering the time I have, I might as well do something with it and at least get myself back into the swing of things leading into the new year. So, at least for now, I've got quite a few things to get through, but so let's not waste any time at this point, considering this is going to be a 2022 retrospective on my favorite shows and favorite movies to come out. At least for this episode, I'm going to keep it just brief and just to anime-related material in general. So at least for the rest of that, I'll probably push a couple of the movies and the shows that I ended up watching later last year at that point to another episode. But for now, I'm going to try and get through everything that I've got lined up for the rest of it, considering that I was trying to figure out what kind of method or just style I wanted to make this in terms of a retrospective, how many I wanted to put in, what do you think would actually be worth putting in the time, what would actually be worth covering, and how many shows I would actually want to put on the list in general. So we'll get to the prime shows that I would recommend that everybody go see, or at least the ones that I enjoyed over the past year. But for now, I think we'll start with the movies just to at least get that along the way and finally go through. Because this was definitely a phenomenal return to form in heading back into the theaters, at least for North America, considering that at least in 2021, I was only able to see four movies in theaters, whereas now in 2022, I was able to at least catch 10 movies in total. Seven of them were able to come through theaters across the country, and at least having that opportunity to go through and experience that kind of joy and setup in general, I was really glad that at the end of the day, I was able to go through and experience those with a group as well. But at least the two movies that I didn't get to go see, considering that I don't really have a lot of experience in relation to these shows, so the quintessential quintuplets movie that just recently came out, haven't watched any of the shows, so there wasn't really a reason for me to jump into that, and then also the One Piece Red film. Same deal, have not watched, well, I've probably watched like a handful of One Piece episodes, and I think I've done one of the movies just to kind of like see how the majority of the action like lines up for other shonen fare, so same deal, not even close to enough knowledge just to go through it and try and enjoy the One Piece movie blind. Unfortunately, I have been spoiling myself a bit, especially with a handful of things that have been happening in the Wano arc, but to be fair, that'll all come in due time when I do inevitably jump into this series, whether or not it is the One Piece shortened version of the story, or in this case it's going to be the manga, only time will tell, but that'll be the case. At least for the last time, the first and last time I'm hopefully going to have to talk about this movie this year is going to go to my least favorite movie of last year, which was Goodbye Dunkleys. I've <laughs> gone over this multiple times, just over and over and over again, on just how completely pointless and monotonous and just apathetic and how, like, I just didn't care at all for any of the characters involved. You kind of felt like, like there was more of enough of a connection of the main two boys, but then the third one that ended up showing up in the absence of one of the others just didn't really fit in towards the rest of it. And kind of just, th there is some sort of fantastical element to the show, of course, when it ends up getting to Iceland, which, same deal. The only reason I believe that the director of A Place Further Than the Universe ever decided to put or write Iceland into this movie's premise in general is so that she would be able to get her or somebody else to go do some location scouting and have the opportunity to go and have a good opportunity to get a look at the landscapes down on mainland Iceland, which to be fair, those mountains and the ranges and the waterfalls and almost every part of that looked phenomenal. 
the problem is, is that I just did not care about any of the rest of the story. It was just so ridiculous how the how the rest of it was just tied along with stragglers for the rest of it since it was like a worse version of Stand By Me, which I haven't seen that in a couple of years, so I might need to go back up and check on it to wash this movie's taste out of my mouth. But hopefully last <laughs> this is the last time I'll ever have to talk about it for the new year until it inevitably gets a nomination for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars, in which I will completely and utterly just devolve into a primal fit of rage, which, okay, not, not that hard. I not that much, but still. It was just, I don't know, I, I did not care. It was so utterly boarding and monotonous, like, leading into the rest of it, so I don't know. Second in, I know this movie technically premiered in Japan and in film festivals last in 2021, but considering that it was able to go through and have its North American theatrical debut in 2022, I'm going to add this to the list, and that is Bell. Bell was the same kind of deal in the sense that I didn't care too much about any of the characters involved leading into this. Belle herself doesn't necessarily like bring too much of it. Also, Mauro Hosoda, try, like, he loves the story of Beauty and the Beast, but considering the way the relationships inside of this story works, considering the entire cast and how they just jump around between each other, like none of the themes or the plot beats in either story mesh up at all. And when they actually go and do a Beauty and the Beast bit, like none of this is supposed to be happening because you're kind of, it's like, oh man, is this going to be like a romantic thing? Are they like leading into this considering that she's also got, you know, somebody that she knows that acts very much like him. And then we end up going from uh, just surviving and getting over trauma to relearning how to get yourself back into the world through the help of VR and augmented technology to domestic violence. Just, it, it was so all over the place. I, I could not get through the rest of it. And I know I'm not that much of a stickler when it comes to 3D CG. I love it when it gets integrated to the point where it fits very well into the story as a whole and as well as it's integrated. So there's not too much of a tonal whiplash whenever you go and alternate between 2D and 3D and it doesn't take you at the moment. There were way, which... I guess it makes sense considering that it is a VR, AR world, and I never really had the opportunity to go through that, but when the 2D aspects, when you ended up going back into the real world, just looked so much better by comparison, it didn't necessarily like fit in the same way that you were hoping it would, and it just took you out of the moment consistently. Especially when the movie Michu reaches its emotional climax, you, in the moments, are getting wrapped up to, into it, and on its own, it's a really good scene. Like, basically, there are two scenes. It's basically the final ballad of the movie and the train station scene. Like, those two on their own are so phenomenal and are easily the best parts of the movie in general. But then when you bring it back to why they're doing these things in the first place and what the reason behind the scene was, it just completely takes you out of it and everything falls apart around it. So I just could not bring myself to care about any of the characters, and at least just get enveloped into the ways that they were able to try to bring me into this world. And it's fine that Hosoda, like, brought himself back in, because this is not the third time he's, like, gone into VR and AR and how that essentially, like, revolves around society as it's evolving, which has been cool. He did it the first time in Digimon or War Game. He did it for a second time in Summer Wars, which easily is the best of the three times that he's done this, and then he tr tries to pull off a trilogy inside of this, incorporating it back into Bell. I understand that he likes it, but this is just, it's, I don't know, I, you've, it's overstayed your welcome. You need to 
either try to do another story, Mamoru Hosoda, or you need to get somebody else to write your stories for you. Because he is a phenomenal director, for sure. But when he's the one that takes care of the storyboards, the script writing, and the directing all as a whole, it's kind of like George Lucas, where you really need to like reel him back in a bit. Like He just can't have all control over the reins. He just needs to have like a good oversight and a good way of constructing scenes that have been written for him. So... Hopefully, I'm still I'm still going to be interested in seeing what he comes up with next. I'm just really hoping that he incorporates more people into his creative process so it's not just him behind the wheel the entire time. And so I guess this is a common theme for all the movies that I didn't necessarily enjoy too much. Bubble, which in this case was going to be the rest of it, it was, in this case, just too many cooks in the kitchen, considering that you had Tetsuro Araki as the director, you had Geno Rabuchi as the script, who wrote the script, and then you had Hiroyuki Sawano ended up ending up doing like the OST, which is on paper the main reason why anybody gave this film the time of day to even have the opportunity to go through and see it. But there were just way too many ideas, way too many like over overstanding plot threads, and the same deal. I think this one ended up trying to go with the Little Mermaid, so another theme where it's just like don't incorporate fairy tales unless you are legitimately going to commit to them where it was just in name and given an excuse for them to recite lines from the old either german or european version of the little mermaid not the disney version not the lighthearted one but it's just like oh yeah no it's so it's set for tragedy immediately okay okay fine i understand that but it's just the same deal you don't get enough time to just latch on to anybody in the main cast but whenever they do do these floating bubble zero gravity centric parkour scenes i will admit that is easily the best part of what this film was able to accomplish i mean it was like as it looks it is a phenomenal one and with studio whenever they're involved into a project you know that at that point in time there's going to be a lot of spectacle put on screen and so that was a phenomenal uh, decision in terms of bringing them into the fold and having them have the opportunity to go for the production but that was definitely something that the uh, the producers at netflix definitely went to that point and said okay so we need uh we need the biggest names that are currently uh so is gonna Rabucci doing many projects no okay we need him to just get like some baseline some initial part of the script so we can like put his name on the project and so it's just kind of like a who's who inside of the anime world to try and get as much interest as possible which unfortunately it did catch mine, but it really did not come together too well in the sense that none of the ideas meshed, and the only thing that was very consistent, that itself was the soundtrack and how the visuals were able to go through and incorporate a lot of good CG and 2D elements into this space where they consistently had to go around like zero-G uh, environments to essentially save the day, I think. But yeah, this probably... W I, I don't really know if this would have been better as a series or like a mini-series to give it another hour or two of opportunity to either flesh out the other characters or give some more you know <laughs> information about the world that ends up like popping up but it's yeah it, it was kind of it fell flat towards the end it it popped on its own and there wasn't really much you can do afterwards so at least we'll get to the rest of it because from here on at least these movies i enjoyed to a degree the rough stick considering that i had some opportunity to either relive some good moments with uh some characters that i'd already know to love and get introduced to some new ones that ended up having giving me a phenomenal experience whenever i was going to the theaters one of which of course was the dragon ball superhero movie and so that was it. whenever even though i haven't seen 
all of Dragon Ball, most of which I know is coming from the Z saga and not having as much to do with the, the parts of Super that have been airing recently. But regardless of that point, whenever you're going into a Shonen Fair uh, like film, especially when you're going into it with a group of people, that's the only time when you want to see the crowd get rowdy, when you want to see them all hyped and getting the energy up and like having the opportunity to give a new, fresh experience whenever you go to the theaters. And Shonen Fairs definitely do that. And Superhero, while it meandered at times, it was definitely nice to see Piccolo and Gohan actually get the spotlight towards this one. So to see him, not which kind of sucks, because he did have the opportunity to bring his own style and learn from Piccolo himself. And Piccolo also ends up getting both a power-up and an opportunity to shine with the rest of the characters. Even though they did go through or rehash a lot of the ideas about the Cell Saga, it was also cool to kind of see Gohan's kid have the opportunity to go through and shine on her own, realizing that if they do like push this forward another 10 years or so, and Gohan is now Goku's age, and Goku is pushing more and more out of the limelight, then she'll have the opportunity, because it's like, damn, this four-year-old is literally already flying, managing key, and like moving at super speed to the point where it's like, what the hell? She's going to be a phenomenal Saiyan warrior when she grows up. Uh, <laughs> considering that she can dodge bullets at the age of four, you know, that's a plus for me. Um, so, hmm. I can't remember if this was an adaptation or not, but Lady Nikuko, I would say it was a good slow burn slice of life show or movie in this case like out in the middle of an island village and seeing how everybody interacts and kind of like that small town energy and vibe with everybody knowing who everybody is, like seeing the different generations either grow up, move away and come back and having the opportunity to give their new perspective and experience on life and how that ends up adding to the whole culture of the village or well, not village town, let's just call it town or, or the fish, this fishing town as a whole. It was it was nice. It was a slow, enjoyable movie that was kind of fun to go through and watch. Considering that this is one of the two movies on my list where it mostly just follows kids doing things that they are completely out of their depth towards, but this one, it didn't necessarily like step too far outside of its wheelhouse. It knew where its strengths lied, and it stuck to basically keeping that low, mellow vibe towards the rest of it, where there isn't that much conflict, and there isn't that much, uh, like, driving set to force the characters to change too much, but just recognize what their roots are, and where they're coming from, and where they're going. And so at least it was nice. It was a nice, fine film towards the rest of it. And very much so, like, keeping in that same vein, the last movie I ended up watching towards the end of this year was the Eurocamp movie, and kind of the same deal. It was a little tough to get into at first, like, seeing all of the girls come back in this happy-go-lucky set, but they're, they've grown up, they're, like, in their early 20s, they're either maneuvering around, trying to figure out how they can still incorporate their friends and camping into their lives, they're still trying to figure out ways to just survive the Japanese work week, which completely saps them the energy out of, to be fair, mostly just Rin at this point, because she's the one that's doing like at the at least hour trek into the city. Everybody else, at least to this point, is either a mellow or just a low set vibe where we end up having like dog groomers, pet groomers. We have teachers. We have clerks managing camping stores. It's like, towards that, everybody else seems to be, like, having a low, like, chill, stressful kind of life, except for 
you know, blue pigtails, considering that she's the one that's the catalyst to push the story in motion. And it was kind of, like, you understood that because it was a movie, there had to be some kind of conflict or some kind of obstruction just to at least bring some kind of tension into the show, where, to be fair, I would have been fine with most of this movie just, where, which, to be fair, it is. You're only, like, feeling down for 10 to 15 minutes out of this two-hour runtime, but the, for the rest of it, just to kind of see all the girls, even after... For them, it's been more than four years. For us, it's just been kind of like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, they were just camping, and now they're going out to have the opportunity to rebuild one in their own image. And it was, and that was fun. It was cool to see them essentially, like, use their expertise and their tools and their newfound adulthood to actually go through and get these projects done in their own vein, considering that uh, Nadeko is, or Nadeshko, or, yeah, fuck. <laughs> Uh, it's it, it's tough to go through and back, but considering that she is not only forklift certified, but also excavator certified, it was just really, uh, it was fun to see them go through and use different methods to accomplish their goals towards the end. And so that was, it was a fun change of pace to kind of like go through and see how each of them had kind of grown up and evolved and tried to keep themselves in the circle of their friends as well as keep camping in their lives. So yeah, it was an enjoyable watch to that point, and I really at least had the opportunity to get that sort of mellow feel towards the end of the year leading into a new one. So I'm kind of glad I was able to cover that towards the new set. But now, jumping back into uh, the action set, specifically Shonen, uh, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, it was kind of the same deal. I wasn't really expecting much because it was a canon prequel set to Jujutsu Kaisen as this was kind of like the genesis of the idea around the show in general, where we were going to get this new shy kid who was voiced by uh, Megumi Obara. It's voice of Shinji. And considering that at least they were able to give Shinji the opportunity to just go through something that wasn't either like confused, annoyed, and depressed, and lowbrow, because at least Shinji was able to go through and do that towards the advent of Eva 3.0 plus 1.0, which I would have put on this list because I did end up going to see it in theaters for the first time this year. But considering that it ended up debuting back in 2021, but at that point in time, it was officially, like the worldwide release was put on Amazon Prime. So that's why I would push Ava towards 2021 rather than this year, because to be fair, it would probably also get the best movie of the year this year as well. But that's no... Uh, set towards any of the rest of the films going through because it was fucking Ava 3.0 plus 1.0. It is like still, it's going to be pressing as like the best film of the 2020 or the best anime films of the 2020 so far, and that is going to be a very high bar to cross. But I mean, going to the point where at least like seeing Megabi go through and play the main character in Jujutsu Kaisen with such visceral, malicious, and just anger and just to go through and voice them with such malicious intent and visceral anger towards the majority of the lines that happen in the last half of this movie, it was really interesting to see. And But it was still a phenomenally crazy film, considering, like, it is Jujutsu Kaisen, you know there's going to be funny interactions between the characters, you know things are going to get dark, and you know things are going to get cranked up to 11, especially in the animation department. Considering how Gojo was able to go through and like unleash like a 64 palm blow against one of the dudes in towards the climax and leading in towards the fights at the end of the movie. It was kind of like the problem, the only problem I have with the film is that the first 
like two thirds of it was basically up and down, considering that we at least we knew we know all the ideas and we know the genesis and the rules of the world in Jujutsu Kaisen, but we still don't know this one main character, and so we need to catch him up on things. We have to like let him get incorporated into the group as well, and then afterwards we'll be able to go through and keep pushing forward with the movie's momentum as well. And so, like, the first two-thirds of it's like, okay, there's going to be a little bit of fight, and then there's going to be a little bit of team building, and then a tiny fight, and then a little bit of team building. And then the last third of the movie is just a non-stop action spectacle where they do not crank it down at all. It stays at 11, and it consistently brings the hype with every single fight that keeps pushing forward. So I really enjoyed uh, JJK Zero, at least for what it was. Like, it's not... It's, it's not going to completely, like, change the whole momentum of the shonen like, movie genre in general. I'm just really excited to see what they're going to be able to do, especially with the arcs that are going to be coming up in the second season of Shutsu Kaisen. And I'm really excited to see what they're going to bring forward there, because I don't know if... Well, th we know that the main this main character is going to come back at some point, but we don't know when, we don't know how, but I'm really excited to see when they're going to... Add if they do end up finally coming through and joining the main cast of the ones that we have in the actual series, that's going to be exciting to see. So if there was definitely a move, the movies on this list that surprised me the most because I didn't have any expectations leading into it, and considering I talked about this movie uh, two to three episodes ago, and that would be Drifting Home. Because the same deal, it's like, okay, so a bunch of school kids, like elementary school kids, get transported to the top of this old building that they used to live in, and now they have to figure out uh, how to survive on their own and find a way home. And considering that you expect a lot of, like there is a lot of bickering between the kids, there's a lot of, you know, pointless arguing and meandering around the plot considering that they're kids, they're going to argue, they don't know why they're in this scenario, they don't know what they're supposed to do. Uh, like the two main characters, they had this squabble as kids and they don't really, the main set and the goal of this movie is not to only just make it home, but to at least have those two kids make up and at least get over, not necessarily the trauma, but the miscommunication and the misunderstandings that they made, like, which happened about a year before the movie takes place. But regardless, it's was still more than enough of enjoyable watch, considering that not only do the kids grow in their in their own and learn how to interact as well as work together as a team, that was incredibly fun, especially with how the rest of the movie goes through. Not everything gets explained and not everything kind of like goes through, but it's the relationships that are the ones that get the most growth. And for me, considering how simple the story is, it doesn't necessarily matter how or when they ended up getting into the place that they ended up going, but how the characters themselves are going to learn to grow and learn to reconnect as they did when they were kids. Considering it's the same person that ended up doing not only the, the story of Eccentric Family, but also Penguin Highway, I would definitely still give this a watch considering it is up on Netflix, and it was probably my uh, set for the best surprise film, at least in this case. There were a couple of surprises in coming for the anime section, but at least for films, this was the best pleasant surprise of the entire batch that came out this year. So the second movie, or so the runner-up here, is probably going to go to Pumpo the Cinephile. It was definitely one of those movies that not only looks phenomenal, and it did unfortunately like really go in and settle up on the directing and the editing stuff, and it like really makes it stand out too much to the point where that it overly focuses it at the last part of the movie. Although everything leading up to it 
was a really nice and steady build. You end up having like a good set of uh, camaraderie between the main crew, and even though you, it's just kind of like, okay, this one little girl who's apparently 18, 19 or something, and she's the one who has, considering like we know who her grandfather is, but considering her, her knowledge, you would expect them to kind of like go through and give someone with that kind of knowledge and experience, somebody that doesn't look like they're a fucking toddler, but you know what, this is Japan, it's Tuesday, don't worry about it. But leading into that, I would say that even though this kid who is just a production assistant being thrust into a direct, his premier directorial role with all of the production and the budget and the star power that has been given to this dude who has absolutely like, he he has more than enough knowledge about film, but it's like, does he have the knowledge to direct? Does he have the knowledge to edit? Does he have the knowledge to change the script? Does he have the knowledge to at least be able to cut together a satisfying draft for this movie? It's like, in any other sense of the word, no. But it's because it's anime, because you can at least expect him or at least give him the time of day to be like, okay, you and the girl who is pro who is still going through acting classes and you give her the main supporting role of this film, then there you go. It's But at least she has the opportunity to show her growth and that she's being mentored by another actress who is in a much higher regard, same as the main guy who, I can't remember who he looks like, but it's somebody who would be very familiar inside of the actual film world inside of Hollywood. So it was kind of cool to see how that transition goes through and at least he knows, considering he's a production assistant, being thrust into the limelight as a director, he knows the trials and the tribulations, and he understands like how much time and how much effort it takes for every piece of the production and every assistant and every member of the cast and crew to make this project worthwhile. It was I was definitely glad to see that he, at least through his empathy, knows how to interact and knows how to at least bring everybody into the fold so he doesn't necessarily waste time or money. So that was definitely something that was nice to see, especially with the little nod towards the end of the movie, especially in terms of how much time the movie gives itself. I, I just couldn't help but like smile and say, okay, fuck you. You, you, you've got my vote. That was, it was definitely like a nice little uh, piece to end the movie off on. But in terms of my favorite movie that ended up coming out this year, I had really no expectations other than the point that this uh, movie was done by Science Saru. But considering it was directed by Masaki Iwasa, then there was no, like, I could not skip this, considering that I love the studio, I love the man, and whenever he brings himself on any project, even though it's not the best, it's always entertaining uh, for the most part. So I can at least give that the time of day, and I'm really glad, considering that this was basically just a... Bohemian Rhapsody uh, live aid rock ballad that essentially like pushes for about 45 minutes. You get the initial setup that is fantastical and slow and I'm kind of glad to see for the point that I was able to go through and watch Heike Monogatari by the same studio but in this case it was Naoko, uh, Yamada Naoko that was doing the directing of the previous one but considering I ended up watching that and I had a general idea of who the Heike were and why this was such a big turn in Japanese history, that kind of gave me more than enough primary information for me to go see it. Because I'm pretty sure I said this 
in my review of Inu O at the beginning of the year, but I would say if you want like the maximum amount of interaction and knowledge like leading into this film, probably watch Heike Monogatari and then go through and have the opportunity to come through Inu O. Because it does a good job in the first half of the film to essentially set up the plot and its world and why everybody's doing the way that it is and why that it's in turmoil and why a movement that comes into the second half of this film gains such traction, such popularity, and is just such an overall blast to see everything going through. Because it is essentially just, the last 45 minutes of this movie is just a rock concert. Like, a 45-minute rock concert that consistently, like, pushes through every phenomenal set piece and considering like how it's able to go through and one up itself with every consecutive performance it was a really fun and really enjoyable piece all the way through it does start off a little slow and especially if you haven't seen Heike Monogatari you don't necessarily know the major set pieces and why everything's happening the way that it does and why the sword is important and why the sword seems magical but thankfully they just kind of throw that by the wayside because that's not important it is the rock and it is the creative movement that is happening all across japan that leads into being the most important part of this film and if you want to have something that is a phenomenal and rowdy romp of a time and if you're just like a fan of getting that concert experience inside of an anime film regardless of the time period that I would definitely recommend giving Inuo a watch because it was easily my favorite anime film of the year. Now with the movies out of the way, we can finally go forward and move towards what were my favorite shows, or at least to the point where it was the most enjoyable times that I had during the year, considering that this year had a lot of bangers. This was probably one of the most consistent in terms of having a good lineup every season there was always something of note leading in through every three months and so you were never bored and you were never dissatisfied well i mean i would like to say regardless of the season maybe that probably goes to summer was probably the weakest season of the year but to be fair summer is always the weakest season of the year not only because of the heat but also because of the kind of anime that come out around that time so what can you do so before I go off and talk about the shows that i did like this year to just to make sure and to at least like line up for the ones that I didn't watch, either I wasn't necessarily interested, I never got around to it, or um, I just dropped it entirely. So at least for the ones that I didn't watch this year, for the ones of note, I already talked about last episode how I dropped to your attorney's second season. We'll just leave that as it is. Akebi-chan's sailor uniform, I heard good things about it, kind of like how that was a decent cute girls doing cute things slice up life show but it was never really something that was a priority to me and i didn't necessarily like hear too much of the praise until it was leading into the ends of the season so unfortunately that's not the case even though i've heard of nothing but phenomenal things about the animation and about the world and how funny the majority of the show is i still have not jumped into princess connect yet especially with all the clips that i saw coming out of season two this year that's probably something I'm going to have to watch on just the spectacle alone, but maybe at some point we'll just have to wait and see. Even though it's been years since I've seen uh, and like done anything towards Death Note, because I have not, I didn't even watch the live action one for various reasons. Um, I didn't end up going through and watching uh, Platinum End, which was also done by the same creative team that did Death Note. But considering how the things that I've heard about the show, I'm probably going to go and rewatch Death Note before I end up jumping into this show. And even though I dropped the first season, Shield Heroes' second season, I'm definitely... It's it's not kind of like a vindicating moment where it's just kind of like, ha, I told you guys, this thing was shit the entire time. Because most of 
the praise in the show ended up coming through the first season, but seeing how absolutely nobody enjoyed the turtle and what was the entirety of the second season of Shield Hero, I can just... I'm not gonna say, like, Zamamiro, like, serves you right, how could you, like, watch this trashy shit, because it's to each their own. Everybody, like, watches, like, different shows for different reasons, but considering the way that Shield Hero Season 2 was unanimously despised across everybody who decided to give that show a watch, I'm at least able to go through and... I don't really know if they're probably going to get a third season, it kind of all depends on what the Japanese audience thought of it and how many Blu-rays they sold from there, but... Only time will tell, because, I don't know, I'll just have to leave that by the wayside. Um, kind of in the same shaky vein, uh, I don't know why uh, Classroom of the Elite Season 2 ended up getting, like, the notoriety and the amount of people that were excited, because it was, like, the top three most-watched shows in either spring or summer of this year, out of fucking nowhere, because all I remember is that, okay, there was a show by that name, and it had a season a couple of years ago, and then the second one comes out, and everybody's like, oh, this is going to be anime of the season, anime of the year. It's like, whoa, 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 Wait, what? This already had a season. You guys are, like, already proclaiming that this is going to be, like, one of the best shows of the year? I really don't get it. And apparently nobody really got it until the last episode, I guess? The only pieces of information that I know about this was considering that Jeff Three Mother's Basement ended up doing an episode on the entire second season, and... From what I saw there, nothing would have piqued my interest anyways, so I'll kind of just leave that as is. Apparently the last episode was quote-unquote good because it had like one good fist fight scene, and that's enough to erase all of the irregularities of the show. It's uh, I'll just... Okay, I'll just stop talking about it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna ever get to anything that lines up. Judging on how, same deal, like as with S.H.I.E.L.D. Hero Season 2, if the Blu-rays end up selling pretty well for Classroom of the Elite Season 2, then they'll probably get a third season because apparently there are more books, so that's the case. Um, this, in hindsight, feels like a show that I would enjoy, but considering how much COVID has ravaged its production, I still haven't ended up giving myself a chance to go watch Isekai Ojisan. The clips that I've at least seen makes it seem like it's a pretty funny subversion, especially when you're, not only is your dunce a teenager but they're like a middle-aged man who's asking about the status of the Sega Nintendo Wars and it's like okay this 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 might be entertaining enough for me to watch this guy but it's unfortunately still not completed its entire run considering that COVID has ravaged its production not only once but twice so really unfortunate because I've heard nothing but good things about this show and it definitely seemed like it would be in my alley but I'll, I'll hopefully wait to see if this production finally reaches its conclusion which I'm hoping to everybody involved in the cast I hope it does I gave the first couple of episodes a try for Urusei Yatsura just to kind of see how one of the OG waifus of the 80s lines up and how she translates into, you know, the modern day, especially with how well they were able to incorporate her and her dance and, like, making her more of an idol star inside of the opening, which is which is still, like, probably, like, one of the best openings of the year, but considering, like, what the show was and the tropes that it's like it's cool to watch it was cool to watch the first six episodes to see the tropes that it set up and it are now like mainstays inside of the rom-com genre as a whole but not a lot else kept me involved considering i didn't care about well it's, it's like oh man how could you not care about the romance in a rom-com you know it's never gonna happen it's like okay i get it i understand 
I was just kind of hoping for there to be like a lot of good chemistry and interactions between the rest of the cast, but it definitely got pretty stale pretty fast. Although Miyuki Sawashiro is uh, well, like one of the main gals whose duty is to exercise curses, and at least that was a fun, recognizable thing to go through. So it's 50 episodes, it's gone through its first 13, and at some point I'll kind of see how it ends up. I, I, have, an, I have a general idea about how the rest of the tropes are going to lay themselves out and how the story is going to end as a whole. At least I hope it ends the way I think it ends, but I think I'll wait until it was able to, it's able to go through its 50-52 episode run and then I'll check back in to see if anything of note ends up happening. So now the two shows that I didn't end up getting through and catching definitely seem to be up my alley and are definitely ones that I need to go back and watch for one reason or another. Not because it started this year, but Golden Kamui Season 4 ended up happening with a fifth season on the way, and thanks to an episode done by Beyond Ghibli, it definitely seems like this is a show that is way up my alley, especially with the chaotic sense of the characters and the drama. The story kind of takes a backseat to experience the Ainu culture inside of Japan, and kind of seeing how the rest of that incorporates into a Japan that is evolving through the rest of its uh, revolutionary conflicts and wars. And Hokkaido just seems to be a beautiful set piece to, for the story to take place in. So at some point, I will jump into Golden Kamui. Unfortunately, it's not too high on the priority list, but it will get to a point maybe by the time the show ends. And then the one, which I wouldn't understand why people were like, wait, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where's Licorice Recoil? Where's Licorice Recoil? And it's just, I didn't get to it. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was... It was fun to see the clips go through, but it, would just, it was definitely one of those shows that continuously like brought more and more fans and people into the fold as the show went on, and it apparently ended in a pretty strong note with more of an open end for more content if it ends up being successful, which, shocker, shocker, it, it was easily like one of the most successful shows of 2022, on top of the fact that it was easily, like in every other Japanese survey metric, they thought that Licorice Recoil was like the best show of the year. So it's just only a matter of time for me at that point, considering that, you know, it, it definitely seems to have like that sort of deal where it's like John Wick style powers, cute girls doing very, very les not lesbian things, but it's it's so like deep to the point where it's not even platonic that's like, look, if these girls like had the opportunity to go and live on their own, like you know that this would just be like one of the best power couples of the year. So I'll at least give them that. And at some point in time I will give it a watch, but same deal, not a priority. There's still a lot of things, especially before my subscriptions and at towards the end of January that I need to get to. So it's on the list, but not yet. But now for the things that I actually did watch. So I'll at least get through a couple of dishonorable mentions before I lead into the rest of it, but um, I'll try and at least go through quickly because these guys were just... Thankfully, as the years have gone on, I rarely finish shows that just don't necessarily... Not keep my interest, but just... It gets to a point where I'm halfway through and I realize that, oh shit, I'm kind of like trapped here. And it's not like, oh, well, why don't you just drop the show? And it's like, it's, uh, it's only like five to six episodes more... And I only have to do it once a week, so I might as well just get it under my belt and not just say, hey, I dropped it, but I'm going to give it a number score. Because that's really something that I don't think should be at least pushed forward as a practice. Because just because you dropped a show doesn't necessarily mean 
like it, not because you dropped it you should only have the opportunity to at least critique a show if you watch the entirety of it i mean if you but like say if you like watch naruto for 20 episodes and then you dropped it it's just kind of like okay i can understand why that would be the case but you can't just say hey the like these characters are shit uh the action's not too good and none of the story is coherent to the point where it's like yeah but you didn't really touch like even 10 percent of the show so why exactly are you critiquing what you assume to be all of it and it's kind of and not to the same scale in the same vein but if i would go through and i just dropped a show just just the drop tag in general says more than enough about it for me to like give any score but i can't realistically score a show until i've watched it in its entirety so that'll definitely come to a point where unfortunately i finished all five of these and i probably shouldn't have because i kind of just yeah i ended up losing time not precious time, but just time itself, regardless. So, probably the highest, which the show that started on the best high but ended up like finishing in a completely bottom rung set was probably Tokyo 24. It was cr the, the premise and the environment and the set piece for the show was crazy enough on its own, and it was like crazy and over the top and entertaining in the first two episodes, to say the least, where, okay, it's like, this is probably not the best put together show, and I know it's Cloverworks, which is like a bit of a whiplash, considering that they can go up and down all over the fucking place, considering like how really pro problematic their production schedules are. But it was like, oh yeah, I'm really interested. And then they kind of just put you into the fold of these characters, and you don't really care where there are all of these revelations and all of these pushes forward and some people die and some people get like irreversibly injured and some people are like put into the point where they're incredibly stressed and depressed about the the majority of the events that are happening but you never really get that energy again until the final episode and it even then you've kind of just lost all care and all like setup for any of the shows or any or any of the characters that was like happening in this side of the show it was, I don't know, it was just definitely not something that I would at least be able to go on. Like, Cloverworks, they did a low run, they did a low ball this year, a good collaboration, and then a high ball show, which I will get to later. But, I don't know, Tokyo 24 is definitely, like, the one that had the strongest start of these five, but then just kind of, like, threw itself under the bus, unfortunately. And then Yurei Deco would probably come closer to afterwards, considering that it was done by Saru, it wasn't directed by Mamoru Hosoda, and the ideas that it introduces in the first episode, and the underlying darkness of the society that kind of revolves around the themes and the concepts of the show, initially got me invested and hooked. But then it just turns into a random, like, episode of the week, or just, like, not monster of the week, but it's just, just separate stories leading into the rest of the show that doesn't really expand too much on what it was trying to show in general in the first place, and... I was not engaged or enthralled or excited about anything that happened like after episode three. And then the ending was so nonchalant and like a total non-factor and just misdemeanor about how they were able to go through and like show us why this whole show happened in the first place. Nothing really gets solved. Nothing really gets changed. And at the end of the day, you're just kind of like, why the fuck was I here for 12 weeks? And it was just, yeah... I don't know, one of the rare science Saru misses, because they they have a really, really, really good track record, and that's why I love this studio in general, but considering that this was not directed by Mamoru Hosoda or Yamada Naoko, then considering that that was the case, not really surprised that this ended up turning out to be a dud. Now, I understand, 
that this shouldn't really be on the list, but the only reason why I ended up watching Ruby Ice Queendom was just because it's been over two years now and I haven't gotten any new Ruby content for the rest of it. And I understand the show, Ruby outside of the show, Ruby as a whole, it's, everybody says it's gone downhill and it's absolute shit and nobody cares about the characters. It's not horrible. It's not bad. Unfortunately, it's not good or even great television. But it's to the point where it's like, I'm eight or nine seasons in and I just want, I'm so far deep that I want to see how the story ends. Like, I'm not just going to go like, oh man, I've if, if I, you know, stopped at like four or five, then that's understandable. Then I could just be like, okay, well then I don't necessarily care about it because I left the show behind years and years ago. But considering how far this is, and there's like only probably two seasons left, I might as well go through and see how this ends up concluding. So I'm really curious to see how that's going to be lining up, but there was absolutely nothing phenomenal about Ice Queendom. They were only... The only best parts about this season was the fact that they were animating it in, like, inside of a 2D anime style really well, mind you, because there were a couple of good cuts. The only good cuts, unfortunately, were around the really well animated scenes of the original Ruby show, because I can't remember if it's the first four or five episodes are just rehashing old episodes and catching us up to where the story is actually going to take place. And not a lot happens, like, not a lot of interesting things happen, considering that this is, like, between seasons two and three, I think. And just, there's absolutely nothing to add to the rest of it. Nothing new gets involved, and it's just something that was such a non-factor to lead into the series that it was just, like, padding to give us some kind of Ruby content since we've been starved of it for over two years. So, this is fine. Eh, it's kind of fine. It's not fine. Um, I was kind of disappointed. I don't know why I ended up putting myself through 12 episodes of this show, but you know what? There it is. Same deal with uh, Demon. Demon, Demon, like, whatever. It's just, I was kind of curious about it because it's very similar to the point of Usagi Drop. You know, the somebody has to take on the father figure role of somebody, of a little girl who seldom had any. And so now they're going to be the ones that end up, you know, looking after each other. The first, same deal, first two episodes, three episodes, yeah, it was fine, I can kind of see that. It then degrades into this, quote-unquote, like, not mini harem, but the fact that this dude ends up, like, what, like the, his, his ex, where it is, well, what was it? They broke up through miscommunication, and then neither of them want to get back in together again, which then leads this random teenager to start having a crush on him, and then there's this, you know, mini battle between the two of them to figure out who is going to be able to get this dude's affection, where outside of the fact that he's, you know, kind and compassionate, and he used to play guitar, there's not a lot about him that really puts him into being a good father figure. I mean, because it was... It was fun seeing him dressed up as in the chestnut costume in the first episode, and I'm like, oh, this dude actually has some promise, especially with how he takes care of his family. But everything else is just so bloody boring, and, like, just the the connection between all the characters were non-existent, and you really didn't care about any of the things that were happening inside of the show, and the fact that I ended up sticking around for 12 episodes is just, oh man, I don't know. It, 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 it just didn't work. Not, not, almost anything about that show ended up working, so just what am I supposed to do? So now to at least get through my least favorite show of the year, it's probably just going to go to Devil is a Part-Timer Season 2. It was the one where I I didn't watch any of the trailers. That's probably why I still had good expectations leading into this uh, new season. But the fact that 
it was a different studio and a different cast and a different director just it was so apparent seeing the directing style of it where it's just nobody looks good none of the jokes are landing even though the jokes are in the same tone and given the same delivery as the first season the first season is still good it's still like a good not rom-com considering there's there's action, there's drama, there's comedy, there's romance, there's just all these different things like fit into a regular show, but all of those things were good and they landed, well, no, the jokes landed, the drama was kind of good, figuring out, especially how em Emery was able to go through and like try and recalibrate her feelings, not only towards the demon, but towards the home that she had in general. And that was a lot of good stuff to incorporate into the first season. Nothing lands in the second, absolutely nothing. None of the jokes are memorable, all the characters fall flat, just everything about this. Considering that this was the only one of the bottom of my list that I had any sort of expectations towards, Jesus Christ was this so goddamn boring. Because you, the only thing I knew where it's like, oh, so what is it? There's going to be a surrogate daughter that's going to be incorporated. And so the devil and Emmy have to get along as like a surrogate mother and father. And it's like, okay, that, that could work. A lot of comedy could land, and it could have a lot of good opportunities to go through and make a couple of jokes out of it, but none did. And all I'm just leaving is the fact that the what this show did to me is that, wow, I really hope they don't make any more Devil is a Part-Timer content. And the fact that that's what it was able to make me feel towards the end of it, and the fact that I'm pretty sure there's a third season coming out with the same studio and the same team that did the second season fills me with nothing but dread. But thankfully, with the knowledge that I know now, I can just leave it in the dust and forget it ever existed and just at least remember the good times of season one and hopefully find some peace in that. Okay, so now that we've gone through the rest of that, at least we can go through and come together with my top 22 anime of the year. So I'll at least be able to go through and have the opportunity to run, even though I've talked not at length about some of these, I'll try and keep those brief, but at least these were 22 shows that at some point engaged me and entertained me to the rest of the point that at least I had a fun time with them towards the year. And so at least giving them a proper send off at the end of the old year and into the new is the least I can do. So. For this, I'll give uh, 22 to Dress Up Darling. And it's definitely one of those shows where it's just, it looks phenomenal. I really enjoy the chemistry between the main two. And this is not the show that I was saying that Cloverworks like had the rest of it, although it was popular. And so it really did help Cloverworks, especially being probably their most successful, uh, well, maybe. It might be the second most successful show they did. Okay, well, now it's third. Okay, it's, <laughs> I keep, because I keep thinking about it, it's like, well, I started from the bottom with Tokyo, and now it only basically goes up from here. And it actually does so with the ranking as well, so that's eh, that's kind of interesting. But then, yeah, no, it was it was a fun time when we weren't ogling Marin. Everything else about the show in terms of the production, in terms of how they're able to set up cosplay, giving you at least in-depth pieces on how it's supposed to do, what kind of scenarios you have to do it. Is it going to be made for a photo shoot? Is it going to be made for a con? What can you do about scheduling? Can you get everything done on time? What essentially does the set or the venue that you're visiting, how is that going to add or detract from the cosplay that you're trying to make? All those things were incredibly interesting. When you're ogling a middle schooler, who is endowed like a 20 year old and then you're also just throwing in like a girl who essentially is the size of a grade schooler and it's like oh she's naked here you go it's like why the fuck oh it, 
not only does it take you out of it entirely, it's just like, oh god, I'm getting put on a fucking list, aren't I? It was, I don't know, there were, it was just those low points of the show that consistently dragged it down towards the rest of it, because there was a lot of good to be found in this. It's just that everything outside of the main duo is nothing but bait and just something that detracts from everything that the show itself is trying to, you know, push forward. But you definitely understand why it was popular for one reason or another. And I'm kind of surprised because I can't remember if Dress Up Darling, was it uh, winter or was it spring? It was winter. So it was at the beginning of this year. And so it's kind of, well, seasonal waifu syndrome. I'm kind of, I'm surprised and I'm not surprised at how Marin was the golden tier waifu for those three months and then towards the end of the year like it, she's been almost completely forgotten so kind of makes sense but there's not really much you can do about that one and 22 nah, 20, nah, 22 going into 21 we end up getting blue lock so blue lock just squeaks in towards the rest of it because a lot of people are calling it hype and a lot of people are going through and giving it the time of day just to at least have the opportunity, especially with the hype that was going through. If this anime didn't air during the World Cup, I probably would have not even put it on the list. But what it's a, it definitely started off slow, which is definitely the part of an ensemble. Like, if, you, if you're telling us, it's like, hey, guess what? You need to emotionally respond and connect with, I think they have like 11 people on their team. And it's just, yeah, there are like main main characters and then there are sub main characters. But the fact that you're telling me to engage and try and connect with all of them is already enough of a tough thing to do. Because at least with other team anime, you kind of go step by step by step. But with this one, it's like, hey, everybody, you need to go through and respond with everybody considering that even though we're not going to give half of them the time of day, why they're here, what the, what the reason is for playing soccer, how they're able to go through, that's definitely the case. And so it gets better as it goes on when the team dynamic starts to get formed, and there is a bit of hype towards the end of the show, which also gives more than enough of a setup leading into the second half, which is kind of difficult for me to put it on here, considering that we're only halfway through its 25-episode run, but... Uh, with the first half that it was able to do and what it was able to accomplish, like bringing everybody's, you know, focus and mainstay to the World Cup as a whole, I think I at least have the opportunity to give it some credit in that vein. And towards the end of the season, it did start getting entertaining. So I, I at least enjoyed that to the point. Um, your boy Kong Ming coming up at 20. That was This was definitely one of the biggest surprises of the year, considering that I had absolutely no expectations for it. People kept on posting the opening on repeat and it was like yeah no i i would say it like it's a good opening it, it's not the best but it was still a good good <laughs> good good hachiki chiki bum bum like i don't know considering how much of an earworm that is and it just completely infects whatever <laughs> song it gets into i'll at least give it that uh Kongming is definitely he was uh Kome, Kongming, he was one of the best protagonists of the year by far. The master tactician was at it again. He was definitely like one of the more enjoyable parts, and you really uh I can bear oh, fuck, I can't even remember her name. It's actually been so long, but still, it was great to see her growth and evolve to not only gain confidence, but just to kind of get the proper uh, recognition that she deserves because she is a phenomenal artist and I'm really curious to see how they're going to be pushing this show forward and how they're going to be able to, you know, keep putting more of his antics on for the rest of it because your boy Kong Ming was probably one of my favorite surprises of the year and so it was a really fun watch through, through and through. Um, at 17, I'm... No, not, not 17, I'm 19. Why am I even just getting fucking numbers mixed up? Holy shit. So at 19, we end up getting um, Demon Slayer Season 2. 
I have said on record before that Demon Slayer is definitely one of those ones where the story and the characters are so monotonous and boring to the point, but when they get thrown into an action scene, everything just get, that just gets ramped up thanks to Ufotable's production. Because that's that's basically the main reason why it's on here. Ufotable is just going to be the studio moving forward where it's like, hey, you want an adaptation of a source material. What studio do you want? It's like almost every single one is going to want Ufotable, considering what they've been able to accomplish with skyrocketing the popularity of Demon Slayer, even though the story and the characters are definitely a little on the low bar. Everything else just gets elevated because of it. And I still, I did like the sound Hashira. It definitely seems like the, the Hashiras are the ones that are getting the most growth and development outside of the main trio, because I don't necessarily care about them. I'm just more curious to see which Hashira are going to live and which ones are going to die, considering that it's, we're currently like just flip-flopping back and forth, because they're the ones that in, essentially bring in the tension and bring in the hype. So I'm still really curious to see how they're just going to be moving forward with this next season because you know there's going to be like it's a good question i think there's like four seasons total of content left so well not four seasons afterwards just four total so i think there's about two more full seasons of content left for them to adapt so i'm really curious to see how that's going to be moving forward and how the rest of this is going to be playing out because you know that ufotable is going to be bringing the heat um so let's see the next one that i'll probably put in was uh Sebikui bisco the shrooms just the shrooms on this show man it was oh man the i can't remember if it was the mushroom hunters or how they were able to uh what they're incorporated inside of their world the world itself was like more than enough like of something that you get incredibly curious about how the rest of the rust was spreading how the civilizations themselves are able to go through and interact with such crazy moments and conflicts that get spread out towards the rest of the show it was really fun to see how the rest of this go. It kind of got a little shaky towards the like middle towards like the middle. You definitely saw a lot of the production kind of like faltering between the rest of it. And it was literally just an episode carried by one voice actor in general, which was just here, I'll at least bring him up. Considering that it was probably the one of the worst animated episodes that I had seen all year. But I can't believe there's henchman Kishibe. So yeah, uh, Tenjiro Suda, you instantly recognize his voice, but considering that an entire episode was carried on his maniacal ravings, considering that the show couldn't be damned to be animated for that episode, it was really fun to see that kind of just malicious and like seething monologue like just drip off of his tongue consistently throughout every other piece where he was either being threatening where he was being malicious where he was being you know pitiful it was really fun to see like just his voice carry an entire episode considering how poor the animation was but how the final set piece and conflict of the show was resolved was like a phenomenal mad max john wick-esque sort of uh escapade and set piece and it was really fun to see the rest of this like pull out and just the manic energy of this show that was able to go through i was really excited to see how the rest of this was able to play out and even though it wasn't the best towards the rest of it it was easily one of the most fun and entertaining experiences i had all year okay next up on the list we end up having my hero season six i definitely talked at length about it on the previous episode where it was just if any season inside of my hero was going to be able to get um anybody back into the show after just a monotonous and kind of like whiplash up and down season four and five 
then this was definitely the one to go through and do it. So I'm really glad to see that it was met with a lot of positive response, considering a lot of the things that were dropped inside of the season, as well as Miriko getting her chance to shine as an, the absolute mad lad that she is. It was really fun and engaging to see the rest of it, even though I'm really curious to see what they're going to be doing with the next arc, since this is only the first half of the same deal of the 25-episode batch that they're able to go through, and they're going to lean it into the rest of it. Which, thankfully, this is one of the only times inside of My Hero where the arcs back-to-back -back are of high quality, and so I'm really curious to see how they're going to be animating this next one, because I, uh, I don't think we got a Utapon cut in the first half of this season. I was, like, waiting for it to go. There were still a lot of good cuts, and maybe one of them... Well, a lot of them did revolve around Mirko, but I'm really curious to see what Utapon is going to be able to do uh, inside of this next season, because or this the second half of this season, because we know... I think I have a general idea about where the cut's going to happen, and I'm really curious to see what kind of movement he's going to be able to bring inside of that fight. Now, 16... We end up getting Call of the Night, Yofukashi no Uta, considering that that song has easily, like, everything that uh, Creepy Nuts has been able to do involving this show was, like, an easy, like, easily one of my most uh, entertaining, like, binges of the year. It was probably, like, the best opening-ending combo throughout the entire year, music-wise, and the inserts that they're able to go through and the entertaining characters and dynamics and bit by bit that you're able to see as it goes along, you would kind of think, well, considering that the initial couple, they, it is a bit sus, for sure. The age gap is always something to go, but considering how childish she ends up acting, you would assume that it's like where, like mentally she's in her 20s. Like she just does not give a fuck. And even though this boy is a middle schooler, which I'm definitely going to count as like, ah, oh, this is kind of confusing. You do see a good bit of chemistry between the two of them. And the directing inside of this show was easily one of the strongest pieces of the year. It made, the, it elevated the jokes, it elevated the creepiness factor, it elevated every single set piece that they were able to go through regardless of the conflict. And every single character put on screen was dripping with style. The engagements and the conflicts were varied and fun, and I really enjoyed all my time that I had with the season. I didn't... what was it? I had, like, bits and pieces of, uh, like, screenshots of a couple of manga panels that come up, and it was like, yeah, kind of interesting, kind of cool. Uh, I don't know. It, it wasn't necessarily something I was too excited to see, but by the time I was able to go through and engage with all the characters and all the chaos and all the fun that you can bring about in the night, I was definitely hooked, and it was one of my more enjoyable experiences leading out through the year. And speaking about enjoyable experiences, this is probably just going to be the most controversial pick, but Pop Team Epic Season 2 is, is is topping up for the rest of it. The fact that it is like nearly halfway up this list, it's, it's probably one of the dumbest things, if not the dumbest entry on this list, but I don't know. The jokes landed even harder towards the first season. The first season kind of like was testing the waters just to kind of see how far the experimental stuff is able to go through, and, and also, of course... Hellshake Yano makes their return, and it was just a phenomenal set piece to kind of like see how they're able to go through and interact with the rest of the set and keep up with the modern with the modern jokes and the stuff that was quote unquote trendy but also modern in in its sense. Considering that all of this stuff like ended up, or at least the original ones ended up going back at the beginning of 2010s, but I don't know. It was it was just a fun, just chaotic romp every single time. I didn't watch all of it, but considering that. 
they swap out the voice actors for like a set of female and then a set of male, but listening to all of their interviews like after <laughs> the show was over to see what they would do with the money that they would do. And it's like, are you going to spend the money on the Blu-rays for Pop Team America? It's like, nah, I'm just going to do X, Y, and Z. It's like, dude, why the fuck are you going to say that? And it's like, uh, it, was, it was really fun. I really enjoyed the time that they were able to go through and I'm definitely going to be engaged to see if they end up bringing a third season of the show. Um, so one of the only shows this year that had a set conclusion, for sure, as it was an adaptation, one of the best original romps that came out this year was Akiba Made War. And this was definitely a show where I was kind of confused in the beginning because I saw the clip from the first episode and was like, whoa, uh, this is different. So this is definitely not the direction I was expecting it to go in terms of the um, initial style and the setting and everything that was related around to it. So... I was pleasantly surprised to see how chaotic this show ended up being, especially in the fact that not only is it an original, but it's a concluded story within uh, by the end of its run, which is always welcome inside of anything related to anime. But at least for the rest of it, it was a fun, enjoyable romp. It did kind of get stale for a couple of the episodes around the middle, but towards the conflict that they were able to go and settle towards the end of the show it was a real satisfying conclusion to see like where it was able to go and like i said before if you are a fan of any of the yakuza games which is definitely where a lot of this show emulates a lot of its style then i would definitely recommend giving it a watch so bleach uh same deal i talked to it at length about on the previous episode where it's just i did not expect it especially how quickly it blew its load in the first episode where it's like we're gonna give you the crew we're gonna give you the name drops we're gonna give you bankai we're gonna give you number one and we're gonna give you getsuka tensho all in the first 15 minutes of the first episode and you're like oh shit so now what like what is the rest of this season even gonna give us if it's already like like done through and checked off everything on the list within its first episode of runtime but at least for that Everything revolving around the rest of the characters, almost all of the captains ended up getting their moment to shine, and was a really fun and engaging introduction for the arc that is to come. I don't remember if it's 39 or 52 episodes total for however long they're going to be bringing the Blood War arc consistently, so I'm really curious to see how that's going to be moving forward towards into the future, but it actually... I'm actually glad that it was able to accomplish what it set out to do, and that is to get me reinvested into the worlds and characters of Bleach, and I can't wait to see how the rest of the fights are going to be going out through the rest of the arc. I would say this is the bit, one of the biggest shockers that I found so high up on my list, but every time I went back and rethought, or rethought, rethunk, uh, reevaluated my just standing on the show, but uh, Ryman's Club, the Salaryman Club, the battery men's like they are they were pretty strong this year it was definitely one of the biggest shockers considering I'm, i was just kind of glad where it's like hey we actually get to go and follow some working class people inside of the rest of japan so it was a sports anime that was also a salary man anime that actually starred a lot of people in their 20s and 30s and i'm thinking okay well I had that earlier in the year with Police Pod, but I didn't necessarily enjoy it too much in the sense that it was just a lot of meandering back and forth between the rest of the characters doing their police work. But this one, not only did it have the hype moments of a sports show, it also gave you the low rundown and the conflict of, oh shit, we have to get this project done and something didn't get saved on the computer and it ended up getting deleted. And I'm like, oh god, this is too hitting too close to home. And it was, yeah, like it was that kind of 
engagement where not only was it at least a little more relatable to me in the sense that we have we somehow have a sports show based on people in their 20s and 30s but now we have the opportunity to go through and still have those hype moments and relive and at least have the opportunity to explore different themes about sports about why people continue to do it as they get older and their bodies become more frail and slower and i mean like frailer and slower it's like dude they're in their 20s and 30s it's like yeah you start to degrade pretty quickly and you are leading into towards your out of your prime and into your twilight and that fucking sucks but um no it was really fun to see how those characters were able to evolve and have the opportunity to grow as people even as they were leading into young adulthood so it was really fun to see how all these characters were able to interact as a group also like kind of the perfect size in of a sense because a lot of like blue lock this year a lot of the sports team anime where this was technically a team because they did badminton doubles instead of badminton singles and seeing the different pairs and duos and teams that they were able to go through and accomplish and bring together for the rest of it because i believe that there were six you there was either only six or seven people and that was more than enough for you to at least latch on to and given more than enough time for each of them to show off their own unique talents their life goals and why they essentially do the things that they do in the first place so i'm really glad to see that at the end of the day ryman's club was a pleasant surprise and if i look through it was probably yeah it was probably my favorite sports show of the year so well done so leading into the rest of it uh number 11 we have mop psycho season three i kind of wish i could have put this up a little higher but it just didn't really I I don't know. It, it, like I said before, it was definitely a show where I was really, really, really hoping. I had some of the highest expectations that this would probably be one of my new favorite shows of all time. And it didn't end with a whimper, but it ended with like a casual walk and a stride across the finish line. So it's still, like I said before, it had its moments, it had the action, it had the character growth, but it didn't really live up to what the second season of mob psycho was able to do considering that easily like its second season is like one of the best pieces of television that came out in the 2010s and unfortunately i can't really say the same for mob psycho season three but it is still going to be a good recommendation to anybody who wants a little more out of the shonen formula than like standard good boy does good things because he wants to be the best that ever was and not to be the best at something in particular but to be the best person that you can be and at the end of the day that's all you need so now we reach the top 10 shows of at least my year in particular. And the, the one that probably the least amount of people watched, but the one that I'm the most excited to come out, I believe, is going to be lining up in the summer of this year for its second season. And that was Birdie Wing. Birdie Wing had no reason being as good as it was, considering that not only did it make a show about golf, entertaining and engaging and exciting and fun but the fact that they were able to go through and bring out such chaos inside of the first half of the show which i really enjoyed a lot more considering it was like more underground mafia golf battles that end up putting so much on the line and a lot more than you would expect but considering like how high strong and high society golf is you wouldn't necessarily be surprised if this is the kind of bets that people are making over just regular rounds or in this case regular you know sets of regular sets of nine holes to see who's going to be able to have the opportunity to win the money in the contracts which is kind of why i was a little disappointed that it wasn't all mafia all the time they end up pushing this towards a regular you know what was it a regular like high school-esque 
Golf Academy show towards the end of the first season, but considering how they were able to keep the campiness and just how ridiculous everything else is revolving around it, still consistent and engaging and fun, and considering that probably one of the best couples of the year goes to the two main girls where it's just, this show is like too lesbian-centric for its own good because every everybody has a crush, everybody has somebody that they're pining after, and it's just seeing the relationships develop between a lot of these characters to the point where you know at some point it's just going to develop into something more but seeing like how unabashedly gay a lot of these girls are towards each other it was just a nice like change of pace and like a fresh breeze in terms of the amount of quote-unquote romance that we end up getting throughout the rest of the year and so yeah it was probably the biggest or one of the biggest surprises for me of the year considering I think there was like a Sorairo utility was like a golf OVA that they ended up putting out at the beginning or no at the end of 2021 or at the beginning of 2022 and it was like oh well okay we got I got a golf OVA all right I guess yeah no that's about as boring as I thought it was going to be and then Birdie Wing comes out and it's like okay I'm just going to you know shoot my drive through a moving train towards the rest of it and it's like oh you got my attention and then the the young little Japanese 15-year-old pulls out the 46-inch driver and it's like, that shit's illegal. That's not uh, tour sanctioned. Holy shit. <laughs> How the fuck is she able to wield that thing? And it's just, uh, yeah, it made it made the neurons in my golf brain go brr. And I'm definitely glad to see that there was actually a golf show in that vein to not only make it interesting and engaging, but also like have some little pieces of golf knowledge and tie-ins to make you invested and engaged towards the rest of the characters in the show and I can't wait for the second season to come up and I really hope it's just as crazy or at least it engages in the same sort of chaotic vein towards the rest of the show and I'm really excited to see how that's going to turn out. Uh, so instead of lesbians playing golf, now we've got lesbians in space with number nine coming in for Gundam Mercury. It's the same deal, only the first part of this is going to be coming out and I at some point, either in the summer or the fall of next year, we're going to get the second half of this season, which I guess in this case, this is just going to be the first half of the story, but I'm just going to call it the first season. Regardless, considering, like I talked about in the episode before, I have not seen a lot of Gundam, just only a handful, and it's still on my backlog, and there's still a couple of things that I wanted to go through. And definitely, like, the high school sort of thing. It's, like, it's high school, but in none of the same vein, like, do regular high school tropes essentially come in and bog down any of the experience that leads in for Gundam Mercury. Because all the mech battles are phenomenal. Everything looks great. I want Gwell to actually, like, have a happy ending, which currently he's not getting. But where it's like, oh, yeah, no, he was a fucking asshole in the first couple of episodes. But it's like, no... We understand that, but now that as he goes through and is freeing himself from the latches of his detestable father, seeing him become his own person and you want to see him succeed, it like it, it's getting better. I'm really hoping he gets his moment to shine in the second uh, season, but until then, my man's just going to be flying by on his own, and I'm really hoping somebody can get, lend him a helping hand. But regardless, just... There's, it's like what every other Gundam show is leading into. You got a lot of good conflict. You got political intrigue, except this one is more based on capitalism rather than like a war between settling states where the earth, where if you're born on earth, you're in the minority here, which is kind of weird to see, but that's something that comes up commonly a lot inside where it's earthians or spatians. But then outside of it, seeing this being the first female lead inside of a 
a Gundam series was definitely refreshing to see on top of the fact that not only that, she is an incredibly competent pilot leading in towards how she's going to have to fight and survive and hold on to the things that she is able to gain inside of the first season as a whole. And considering the amount of mystery that it's already set up leading towards the rest of it, same deal, incredibly excited to see where the second season is going to take us. And I really hope that my man Well is going to be able to have to find some happiness towards the second season. Please and thank you. Yeah, now looking back on it, it has been a while, but <laughs> Attack on Titan Season 4 Part 2 Electric Boogaloo uh, 5.1.159, I don't know. <laughs> it's um, It was really good. It was the, the revelations and the changes that went through this season were a phenomenal change of pace. It's, it's kind of like taking one step forward, one step back in a couple of the revelations and a couple of things that it tries to focus on and where the characters are basically being pushed in a specific direction. But honestly, with the way that this season laid out, it was a phenomenal action set piece. Like every single conflict and huge lead in towards the rest of the show, everything was just, oh my God, just chef's kiss. The buildup, Shiganshima, Everything that this show was building up towards, man, I am so, so bloody excited to hopefully see, you know, Attack on Titan Season 4, Final Season, Part 3.14159-02. It's just, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to stop making that joke. It's just going to be leading in. But I'm hoping that the third part of the final season is the final part so we don't have to go through and make me make that same stupid joke again. So regardless... Loved this part of it. I'm really excited to see what they're going to be able to do with hopefully is going to be the finale, and we'll just have to wait and see. Leading into number seven, we've got Made in Abyss. What is it? City of the Burn City of the Scorching Sun, Burning City of the Scorching Sun, something along those lines. I'm trying to think of which one I liked more. I still think I'm just trying it it's it lived up to the rest of the seasons. I, I still think that this is just as good as the first season and the movie as well. I'm going to have to give it credit. I was not expecting it to rival Made in Abyss's ninth or 10th episode, leading to the 12th episode, leading into the fucking chaos and tragedy and depression and absolute nihilism that was the movie. But the fact that there, it's, I, I don't want to give it credit. I don't want to give it the satisfaction to be like, hey, you made another episode, which lives up to just how fucked up and disturbing the rest of the best parts of the first season of the movie was. And it's just, I don't want to give it that credit. But goddamn, they really went out and made easily like one of the most, if not the most disturbing episodes of anime just in history. And I do enjoy to see like and I enjoyed how they were able to go through I didn't really like the fact that everything that took place inside of the season was just locked down to one location but I still do think that it was more than enough of not an enjoyable experience but it was a rough ride through the rest of it and it was a experience nonetheless that left me satisfied because we all know that the story is still going on, but we're not even close to having the opportunity to see any more animated Maiden Abyss for the next five years. It's considering how the mangaka has been pushing himself, I say pushing himself, he's been walking at a, uh, not a seasonal, he's been like probably a seasonal pace because he only puts out like one chapter every two to three months. 
It's he's on a very slow set and it's not like he doesn't care, but it's just we are now like basically caught up to where the manga is, but there's not really going to be anything leading up. If I'm trying to think, if we do, because now we're already sitting in 2023, haha, happy new year, it's gonna be at least four to five years before we get any content, either whether it's a movie or whether it's going to be an extended OVA or a full season. It would probably take us near to the end of the 2020s in order for us to get enough content for them to animate an entirely third season. So at the very least, Scorching Sun definitely was a phenomenal viewing experience for all the right and wrong reasons. And I'm really glad to see that Maiden Abyss is still able to push itself forward in... Now, I'm not glad that it pushes itself in more disturbing directions, but the fact that we're getting closer and closer to the center of the abyss and to the end of this journey, I'm really glad to see how the majority of this was able to play out and how the conclusion is able to go through and satisfy the majority of the impulses that we were able to go through and experience. So I'm really, it was, it was not a fun experience, but it was an experience nonetheless, and it was easily one of the best shows of the year. Now, the biggest surprise, easily, in terms of, like, one of them, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, what was the, considering the amount of times I said, oh, yeah, well, this, this surprised me, this surprised me, this was a positive experience, this was a negative experience, but it was a surprise nonetheless, this one for sure was probably, like, the, one of the shows that I was looking forward to watching every week, and that is Bochi the Rock. Considering how well, and now that I've downloaded all the albums that they put out on Spotify for all the music that they were able to put out through the rest of the season, I was just really engaged and I enjoyed all the time that we ended up spend, spending with the crew of this show. Because considering that, yes, it is very much like K-On in the sense that you've got a four-man band just like K-On was in the first season, but how they were able to push and move Bochi's character forward where the jokes themselves didn't run themselves too ragged or get too repetitive considering the uh, way that they were able to go and display the jokes and how much creative freedom that Cloverworks was able to do and adapting this entire f I, I believe it was a four comma manga it was the the creative liberties and freedoms and just the chaos that they were able to incorporate into every single episode with every single joke and every single show that they were to say they're able to put on it was just such a phenomenal experience like leading into it considering that this crew was easily like one of my favorite ensemble casts of the year and you and i really can't wait to see what they're going to be able to do with season two considering that i would guess that as i, as I was about to say where it was just like i would guess that uh you know bochi the rock was their most successful show but it's not their most watched for sure considering that they did have a part in spy family and I'm, I'm just editing not editing this on the fly i'm remaking this on the fly considering that spy family did come out this year and i really did enjoy it if i had to put spy family somewhere it's it's definitely not something that i was like like chomping at the bix i would probably put it around 20 or 19 like near kong ming and dress up darling I would say I enjoyed it more than Dress Up Darling, so I'd probably put it at 21 instead. Um, but yeah, because Spy Family, it was it's definitely one of those shows where the production was great, a lot of the jokes did land, but it was definitely something that even though I've read most of the manga for, it wasn't something that really jumped out at me. Although I really did like uh, Bump and Chicken's second OP for it, Souvenir. That was honestly phenomenal. So I'm, I'm sorry I didn't mention Spy Family. I knew I was forgetting something, but it'll be put near the bottom of the list because it wasn't something, even though it was entertaining and it was enjoyable and it was very reminiscent of those Saturday morning cartoons that was leading into it, I didn't necessarily jump onto every one of the characters. And so 
I definitely enjoyed the family dynamic that they've got going, and it is a fun time, but it's not one of my favorite shows of the year, so just putting that in there. Because I would definitely say that in terms of Cloverworks stuff or the projects that they were attached to, that was probably their most watched show, and they definitely did have a lot of success in terms of the Blu-rays for Dress Up Darling, but I'm really hoping that by the end of the year, or well, not by the end of the year, but over towards the next couple of months, that Bochy the Rock ends up getting the success and the notoriety and the viewing experience and the numbers that both of those shows ended up getting because it definitely deserves it all the way through. Go and listen to their album on Spotify if you haven't because if it, was, if it wasn't the great animation, the great set piece, the ensemble cast, the way that they were able to just elevate and express different kinds of jokes and scenarios throughout the, the different episodes, then at the very least, listen to the fucking album. It is phenomenal and it will rock your socks off. So leading into the top five, we end up getting Summertime Rendering which was easily the best mystery thriller of the year. And on top of the fact that it was able to go through and completely crank out phenomenal action leading into the rest of it, not only having a good story, a good ensemble cast of characters trying to survive in any way that they know how, it did kind of get a little shaky towards the rule set, towards the end of the season. Um, but still, not only is it a good novel, and a good adaptation and a good story, it is also something that is complete. At 20, uh, is it 25 or 26? All right, 25. Considering that it was able to go through and be, like it, since it bled into the summer season, as it should, given the name, it was easily the best show of the summer season. And then to top it all off, it had a satisfying conclusion. It had a good set of characters. It had a good, I, I just try, it, it's really tough because I'm trying to gush about things that this show does right, which is almost all of it, and the only things that I can detract to it is that it really does try and put in a lot of anime tropes to make it more, you know, to make it seem more like anime, even though it was put under Netflix jail and they're really trying to just like give that its own selling point. I'm definitely going to give it up to OLM, considering I believe they're the studio that does Pokemon, because when they had the opportunity to flex not only their creative and their stylistic muscles, they were able to go through and animate this to a phenomenal degree, and outside of the rest of it, it was a good setup towards all the characters. Everybody was able to lend a hand in their own right, and maybe there are some that didn't necessarily go through and have as much impact as others. You just wanted to see all of them make it out live. And whenever you're doing a thriller show, that is definitely something when leading into a mystery and having to see how the conclusion is going to be able to make. Can you create the optimal ending for yourself? I'm really glad to see that they were able to go through and find an opportunity to make it do with a good split. But the fact that it was a complete and well-told story, that is more enough to put it in the top ranks in my book. And leading into number four, same deal, talked at length about it. I really want to go through and press and put this a little higher on the list, but that's just how fucking good this year was, and we ended up having Chainsaw Man. Considering that the adaptation itself was able to live up to the hype and not drown anything out and expand upon not only the characters, but with stellar animation and a good set, I, I definitely do understand why a lot of people were turned off considering that not only was the color palette drab, they wanted to give it this sense of realism to a story that is just so chaotic and seldom gives you any normalcy, but this definitely doesn't seem to me, like I said before, 
it's not an anime. Like, this is definitely, like, an animated series that you could throw into any kind of international community and everybody would find something to love and enjoy about it. It is just a phenomenal story, and with the bits and pieces that they gave at the end of the season towards hints about what is going to be coming up and having the opportunity for us to get a little bit of a taste about the next arc that's going to be just as crazy as the first 12 episodes that we ended up getting... I am extremely excited and elated to see what MAPPA is going to be able to bring to the table next, fully completing this adaptation, and I just cannot wait. So number three, considering that it started in 21 and ended in 22, but still had a phenomenal enough stretch towards the end of, end of its story to give it its own place on this top three set, Ranking of Kings. It is phenomenal for me, especially when I've just been waiting for the coin to turn to flip on essentially everything relating to fantasy inside of anime where, you know what, can we just stop with the modern isekai thing because the vast majority of these are already fantasy anyways. Do you think we can just turn it around and just make up straight straight fantasy stories? Like, please? I, because, I mean, Ranking of Kings was phenomenal. It, it was this storybook aesthetic that looked a lot kinder than it was, but giving more European, like, darker, like, themes and setups to what this story was able to accomplish in every facet. You had magic, you had swords, you had dragons, you had mythical creatures, you had all of this, all of these kingdoms trying to not essentially vie for power, but the kings themselves that are trying to reach the top of the ranking and what that essentially means towards the end of the story. It was... Seeing the underdog story of Bochi and Kage bring themselves up, not through not only helping through themselves, but through their own sheer force of will towards all the chaos and all of the evil that this world still tries to push upon them, it is like easily one of the best motivational stories by far this year. And the fact that it is a straight-up fantasy series, the fact that they are able to go back to the roots and have the opportunity to go through and just relive that same Tolkien-style magic and not have any other ties between any other, like, modern pieces today, I was really glad to see that Studio Wit was able to go through and make such a phenomenal piece of fantasy fiction, and I'm really glad that not only are we going to be getting another OVA towards the end of the year, but maybe we'll see a sequel depending on how much time they've got for their scheduling. That being said, the 24-25 episodes that they were able to go through and adapt can be more than enough of a open and book, <laughs> an open and closed storybook in of itself. So I'm really glad to say that that was probably like my favorite fantasy show of the year, leading into at least what is going to probably be my favorite fantasy show of next year, which is going to be Freyrin at the Funeral, Freyrin Beyond Journey's End. Leading into that, I am extremely excited to see how that's going to be going on. And then Dungeon Menchi. Dungeon Menchi is also going to be getting an adaptation through Trigger. Like, holy fuck. Fantasy. Straight up fantasy. It is making a comeback, and I am so fucking excited. So now for the second best... And surprisingly enough, it is a sequel, but it is a sequel leading into one of my, if not my favorite rom-coms of all time, and that is Kaguya Love is War Season 3. Same deal, the direction is phenomenal, leading into the big climax of what the school festival was going to be, and how the rest of the themes and the goals of the main characters were, are going to be able to bring them together to the point where it was easily like one of the most satisfying moments of the year. Considering how well this has been adapted, not only by A1, but with the direction of the man who ended up doing uh, the Rakugo anime leading back in a couple of years back, his direction, his timing, his 
his jokes, his lineup, how well he's able to collaborate with Akka, who's the mangaka of the Kaguya manga. It's what they were able to accomplish with this adaptation is easily not, nothing short of a miracle, considering how well they were able to go through and readapt to everything that was happening inside of the festival, bring in, develop, and <laughs> line up the climaxes of the majority of the relationships that were popping up towards this, and have every single character be involved and engaging and funny and a phenomenal addition to the already growing chaotic group and cast of characters that were leading into this show. So really enjoyed it. I'm glad that towards the end of it, it was able to bring up, which to be fair, could be more than enough of a satisfying conclusion, even though there is a couple more pieces of, of chapters that need to be adapted as there are a few more arcs. But I do believe that this is where the Kaguya manga peaked and I was really excited. But I still think that this was easily the peak of what this story was able to accomplish, and I'm really glad to see that they were able to adapt it with such finesse and such style to give it the, not the ending that it deserved, but the answer to the question that everybody was asking. And I could not be happier for the rest of these characters. So, we had the best rock adaptation, we had the best thriller adaptation, we had the best action adaptation, we had the best fantasy adaptation, and we have the best rom-com adaptation. So what essentially is going to be taking the number one spot inside of this year when it comes to anime? Well, I'm gonna give it to the best cyberpunk adaptation with Cyberpunk Edgerunners. This is still, I can't believe that we are getting to this point where towards the end of the 2010s and now leading into the 2020s that we are getting like some of the best video game adaptations that anybody has ever seen. We've been getting Castlevania, we've been getting League of Legends and Arcane, and now we end up ha getting Cyberpunk Edge Runners that can also be joined atop the mantle on that one. I don't necessarily know what to think because I haven't played any of the newer Automata games, but even though I have not played a single minute of Edge Runners, or <laughs> not Edge Runners, I haven't played a single minute of the Cyberpunk 2077 games, from what I've been able to at least experience in this adaptation alone, it did it on its own and it passed with flying neon colors. Just how Trigger was able to bring us into the world that was already more than lined up and more than just expanded upon inside of the game itself, because it had that baseline, because they were able to go and interact and communicate and connect with CD Projekt Red and see what they were able to do and what they were able to bring uniquely to this world that was given to them and had their own opportunity to shine and flourish. But with the story that we were able to get through with these kinds of characters, some of which, no, not, none of which were even a part of the game. We, we ended up getting references as I saw going in through videos on videos on videos, comparing both this show to the cyberpunk game as a whole. But the fact that this show not only resonated with people who had never played the game before, but it was so good that with the tragedy and the train wreck that was the release of Cyberpunk 2077, the fact that this show was so good that for a game of that little renown and the, that amount of negativity that was attributed to its release, bring millions and millions of people back into the fray to re-experience and replay and just readapt to what is apparently now a good game since they've gotten more than two years to just adapt and rewrite and at least take away quite a few of the bugs that were able to go through and plague the rest of the development cycle. But 
what Trigger was able to do with this franchise and with this show as a whole and how it was able to leave such an impact leading towards the second half of the show where I was a little shaky in the first episode or two but once you get the once you get the group once you're attributed with with David and Lucy and Maine and Falco and Kiwi and Rebecca all oh man like just she is one of the best ride or die characters you have ever seen it was Oh, it, it was just a phenomenal experience. I I had no expectations leading into it because even though we had already gotten Castlevania and Arcane, I still wasn't too set on giving video game adaptations a pass. But even considering that most of the time I was only into it because it was done by Trigger. But oh my god, what they were able to accomplish with this story, with these characters, and considering that it in of itself, the same deal, is an open and closed set that anybody could enjoy. You don't have to play the game, but not only does playing the game enhance the experience, it merges itself perfectly with both ways, enhancing the work, the game, and everybody else who was involved inside this project. So considering what they were able to accomplish and how well this show in general was able to just phenomenally give everybody a positive experience and were able to go back and re-experience everything that cyberpunk and just the whole genre had to offer as a whole then without a doubt for me this was just the best show of 2022 and leading to that i cannot wait to see what 2023 has in store cheers have a good one so